Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. We have a very special episode for you today where I have Sean Friedland, the host of the Compliance Book Club, visiting with Robert Chestnut, the author of Intentional Integrity. It's a great interview, and I would urge you to buy Robert's book, Intentional Integrity, as I believe it will help every compliance officer move forward to create a more integral culture and drive the values of compliance and ethics both up and down your organization. And without further ado, Sean Friedland. Hi, everyone. My name is Sean Friedland. I am the Director of Product Marketing at SAI Global and the founder of Compliance Book Club. And I'm so glad that you could join us today for a conversation with Robert Chestnut, the author of Intentional Integrity. Um, Compliance Book Club has been going on for a year. Uh, We've read three books so far, Fully Compliant by Travis Waugh, Fusion by Denise Leone. And today, uh, we're really excited to have Robert to talk about intentional integrity, how smart companies can lead an ethical revolution. And if you have any questions for Robert, feel free to use the Q&A panel and go to webinar. Uh, we have a pretty loose conversation scheduled for the next hour. That should be really interesting. Uh, for those of you that haven't read Intentional Integrity yet, I highly recommend it. We're raffling away a few copies. So by attending today, you will actually be eligible to win one. Um, and we do have a post-webinar survey that you could answer for us, just to let us know what you thought of today. If you have any questions for Robert following the conversation, and if you need any help finding a copy of the book, um, you could definitely find it, I think, in every bookstore. If you feel safe going to a bookstore in public, feel free to do so. Otherwise, your favorite online retailer should have it. Robert, how are you doing today? Out there. Great, great. Good to see you, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you too. Bright and early for you on the West Coast, huh? Not bad. Not bad. You know, it, it, the, the wildfires are, are, have calmed down out here. The sky is clear, so it's nice, nice morning. That's great to hear. Um, so just, just to get started, um, you know, whether someone's read the book or not, or is familiar with some of your other work, can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and your background and experience? Sure. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I grew up in on the East Coast in Virginia. Uh, I know a, a lawyer talking about integrity, right? It's. Uh, <laughs> I've heard all the lawyer jokes on this tour, I know. So, you know, I, I was a federal prosecutor early in my career. Uh, I prosecuted a lot of drug dealers, bank robbers. Uh, for, the, for those of you who are into espionage, I prosecuted Alder James and oh, a number wow. of spy cases uh, while I was uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Northern Virginia. But, uh, you know, I, prosecuting people can be uh, a bit of a downer. Right. You know, it, it's uh, it's it can be very negative. And I, I really believe in the power of business to uh, to be a positive force in the world and do good. So I was looking for a way to get out. I was looking for some company, you know, that would uh, you know, be able to use somebody like me. The problem was, you know, companies don't prosecute people. Right. So, uh, you know, but I kept getting phone calls about this one little company in northern Virginia. People wanted to, other prosecutors wanted to prosecute them. They wanted uh, they wanted records from this company. I'm like, what does this company do? You know, I've never heard of this little company. And the company's called AOL. And for those, oh, you know, for those yeah. who are on the call that have been around a little while, that was the way that uh, in the old days we used to get onto the internet. And uh, so uh, I, in order to learn about what this company was all about, you know, I grabbed the disc that they send out, they used to send out and stuffed it I in my computer. Those discs. <laughs> yep. If you remember home phones, uh, yeah. you know, we used to plug your home phone into the back of the computer, and there I was on the internet. So I became sort of an early internet adopter almost by accident. And one of the companies that I started to use 
uh, was eBay. And back then, eBay was tiny. We're talking about you know, 1997, uh, 98. But uh, it struck me one night that eBay was uh, a, a very powerful business. And it's something that I thought they could use a prosecutor's background. So uh, I send an email to jobs at ebay.com. Uh, and the next thing that you know, I'm having dinner with this uh, a woman by the name of Meg Whitman. And she hires me. I'm employee 170 at this little company, and uh, I'm out to California. And that, that started my career in tech. Uh, I uh, started eBay's trust and safety department. The, wow. All the fraud efforts, uh, the efforts to stop illegal items, uh, you know, items that were offensive somehow, uh, limits, seller limits, and the like. So I, I started it, built it to a team of 2,000. Wow. And then. I, uh, yeah, the volume of things that get sold on eBay, that's a lot of work to do. <laughs> oh, it, I remember we were, we, would, we were getting 7 million items per day wow. uh, in different languages. So it was quite a challenge. You know, the, in fact, folks on my team uh, now run Trust and Safety for Facebook, and then someone else runs it for YouTube. So it was a, a you know, good early experience that's still relevant today. And so after eBay, I moved on to a company called Chegg. Uh, general counsel at Chegg, and then most recently I was the general counsel and chief ethics officer at Airbnb. Quite the pedigree and uh, quite the coaching tree of people that uh, used to work for you, kind of going off and branching out on their own. Yeah, it's uh, so, Silicon Valley is a fascinating place. It can be kind of a small place too, and you work, you know, you work at one great company and it can spread out. It's neat. Absolutely. So, I mean, you clearly have a lot of experience, and maybe that leads itself into this next question. But, you know. Why choose to write a book about ethics and integrity? Because writing a book is, you know, it takes like a part out of you from what I've heard. I, I haven't done it myself, but I know it's a, a lot of work and probably, you know, in a lot of cases more than people realize when they get into it. So what really drove you to choose to write Intentional Integrity? No, I, I never, never thought I'd write a book, uh, never on the agenda. But when I, when I was at Airbnb, I started a program there uh, and the, the point of the program was how do you drive integrity into the culture of a company? You know, Uber had gotten in a lot of trouble uh, and they were just right up the block from us. Uh, Me Too uh, was uh, in full force. And I was doing a lot of thinking around uh, you know, why this was such a big risk for companies. Uh, you know, and, and instead of sitting back pro, you know, and, and doing nothing, I decided, why don't we get proactive? Why don't we do something to try to prevent these sorts of problems? So um, we tried some things and did some things that were a little bit different. And uh, to my surprise, employees at the company, it really resonated with them in, in an emotional way. Uh, people were really proud to work at a company that uh, cared about integrity, talked openly about integrity, and uh, you know, did things to emphasize why we should do the right thing. And uh, it, it was interesting. My my wife used to be in the publishing industry, so look, if, it's it's like you know, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. To somebody in the publishing industry, everything looks like a book, right? So uh, I'm talking to her about these interesting things that we're doing. She's like, no one else is doing this stuff. This is really interesting. More companies ought to do it. You ought to write a book. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, right. I'm a general counsel. I've got a lot of work to do here. I don't have time to write a book. I'm not doing a book. And she said, no, you've really got to write a book. I'm like, no. She said, 
I will get you a writer and I will get you a major publishing deal if you'll do this. So my mistake was I said, oh, yeah, sure. You get me a writer and you get me a major publishing deal and I'll do a book. And (laughs) we had a a writer and we had a major publishing deal. So uh, I spent uh, about 18 months, Sean. uh, I gave the writer every Monday night for three hours. And we worked together every Monday night for three hours. And then I would every weekend read what the writer wrote. And we'd start all over again. And did it for 18 months. (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot of work. Yeah, it was a lot of work. But um, by the time I was done with it, uh, I, I I really loved it, and and, and I'm glad I'm glad that uh, I, I spent the time to get it all out because I think this is such an important topic for business today, and it's been fun getting out and talking about it, and it, it really a good experience. Absolutely, and you know everyone tuning in today or or listening to this on demand will most likely be an in-house ethics or compliance professional very focused on integrity, the things you talk about in the book, the things we'll talk about today. Um, but you know, I do actually have a, a question a little bit off script for you based on something you mentioned. And I'm just curious to get your perspective on it. Obviously, you know, every ethics and compliance program has some shared goals, you know, comply with regulations, prevent misconduct, support ethical behavior, create a culture of trust. But every industry kind of has different flavors of that and different kind of capabilities internally to to do that, right? Do you feel like because you worked for a startup, but more of a younger, more experimental company, you had the freedom and flexibility to try to experiment with things a little bit more than you might have if you had maybe like a traditional manufacturing company or a big pharma company? Yeah, you know what, I think it, you know, when, when I started the program at Airbnb, we had, we, we I think had 4,000 employees, so we weren't tiny. I think what what it was actually a bigger factor was the the CEO Brian Chesky, and Brian's not traditional. You know, Brian didn't Brian didn't go to business school. Brian's parents were both social workers, so Brian is deeply committed to doing good in the world through the vehicle of a company, a corporation, and and he is uh, one thing I really credit Brian for is he's got a lot of curiosity. I think curiosity would be, uh, you know, uh, one of the most important characteristics for me of a good leader. And so, you know, Brian and I had a conversation about integrity and how to drive it into the culture of the company. And neither one of us really knew what the right answer was. But Brian looked at me and said, go big. And what I love about Brian is that Brian thinks big. He thinks in a creative, uh, you know, out of the box sort of a way. And I think getting permission from not just permission, I think, but support from the top of the company uh, played a really key role in you know, the ability to, to build a different kind of a program. Uh, because you know, I, I think in a lot of places you get stuck in this traditional mode, right? Where you got your code of conduct that, you, that the law firm gives you. You've yep. got the, uh, the compliance poster with a four point font. You, know, you got the beautiful <laughs> uh, the, the poster with the lake and the sunset and the word integrity underneath. Uh, but I, I don't think that stuff works. I, and I think that um, what we need is a different type of, of a compliance and integrity program. And I think having a leader that's open, open to new ways of doing things, curiosity, uh, you know, gave me that permission. And that was really important. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. And I think, you know, to an extent, you're, you're definitely right. Anytime you do something for a long enough period of time, 
you have a pretty good indication of whether or not it's working or not and whether or not you need to try to mix things up and experiment with different approaches. Um, I think that's really, it's great that Brian enabled you with that kind of, you know, confidence and trust to really try things a little bit differently. Um, and that, you know, you had that support from the top. That's awesome. So obviously just spent a year and a half writing intentional integrity, spent over a decade working in ethics and integrity internally. What are some of the similarities between writing a book and taking on a project of that nature and then and you know releasing the book and obviously promoting that book and being an in-house chief ethics officer fundamentally trying to change people's behavior and help them do the right thing? Well, I, I would say that um, it, there, there, there's mo it's mostly very different, but uh, there's there's one similarity in a way I wasn't really expecting. I, Sean, I think when you write a book, you start with this belief that you know something and you're going to share it with the rest of the world. You're going to teach people. What I didn't really appreciate was that as I was writing the book, uh, I would say, well, you know what? I before I say that, I should check this, or I should go check that, or I should go talk to somebody else. And I ended up talking to a lot of really interesting people while I was writing the book. Um, I, uh, I spent some time with Carlos Santana. I spent time with uh, Commissioner Adam Silver of the NBA, cool. uh, former General Eric Holder, uh, Meg Whitman, of course, uh, Reed Hoffman. And you know what, what I ended up with was, I ended up learning a lot just in the process of writing the book. There's a guy I spent some time with at Duke University. His name's Dan Ariely. Oh, He's I love a, yeah. a lot of people know Dan. Dan, it's, uh, Dan does some fantastic TED Talks. He's got a great movie called Dishonesty. And yeah. Dan was nice enough to let me fly out to Duke and spend some time with him and talk about this subject. And I think the, the, the process of writing a book is in and of itself a learning journey. And you know, just like the process of setting up this new integrity program uh, was a learning journey. Uh, and, and that's, I think, what I really loved, loved about it the most. It wasn't, uh, I think after a while, I would have been kind of bored just going through the tedious process of writing something. But in fact, I was learning as much during the writing of the book as I had learned in the, you know, the 30 years before. And I think that made the book a better, uh, a better final product. That's great. And I, I love that you mentioned Dan. I, when the Dishonesty Project came out on Netflix, I think I watched it just because it popped up on my feed. And then I messaged like everyone on our ethics and compliance team at SAI. I was like, uh, everyone go watch this this weekend, like right. required viewing. It, we had so many good conversations. And, you know, I think just the overlap between behavioral psychology and behavioral economics and, you know, a traditional ethics and compliance program is a really interesting you know, oftentimes untapped overlap in conversation. Oh, it's fascinating. And, you know, when I, as I was spending time with Dan, I realized that a, a number of the things we were doing at Airbnb were you know, accidentally uh, in line with some science. In other words, there, were, there was actually a scientific reason why some of this stuff was actually working, which was pretty cool. Um, yeah, we'd, we had movie night at, at Airbnb uh, around dishonesty. I did a lot of talking about, you know, when I, I remember I, I looked at Dan and, and, and said, Dan, if you want to build a culture of integrity inside of a workplace, what do you do? And he said, the most important thing you do is focus on the little things. Because, you know, what you know, he talks a lot about that concept of fudging, um, that, that there are really 
it, it, it's not helpful to think of the world as being divided into people who have integrity and people who don't. The truth is all of us struggle with integrity. Yeah. And, and we tend, because of our, our natural biases, to look at any particular situation and we're biased in our own favor. We tend to wanna go with the side that benefits us. And we will only though go so far as we can and still feel good about ourselves, right? So, cause a lot of this in, in, in the world of integrity is, you know, do, do we, can we still feel good about ourselves when, when at the end of the day? How good are we at talking ourselves into the fact that this, this gray area is all right? And ambiguity and silence are the enemies of integrity, right? So in an environment where no one talks about integrity, where rules are ambiguous, that creates, that, that really is, creates this giant canvas for everyone to paint on in, in their own uh, vision of what they think is right. And we, they naturally start to fudge. And then when they start to fudge, once they do it the first time, the brain waves actually show that people get used to it. And then yeah. they go a little further and a little bit further and a little bit further. And pretty soon they're way out over here and it's gone, right? <laughs> and, and so the, the way to, to start with this is keep integrity on the front burner and make sure that people are thinking about it right up front so that they don't make those first steps, you know, off toward fudging and fudging. Because once they get way out there, it's too late. Absolutely. And there was such an interesting and kind of like tactical piece of research in that movie around attestation. And, you know, everyone that takes compliance training, traditionally at the end, they're going to sign that or check that box that says, I paid attention. I, I promise to follow these rules or comply by these regulations. And they did research. And for people that haven't watched the movie, definitely go find it. That just by putting the attestation in the beginning of the training experience instead of at the end, it increased the likelihood that people would actually pay attention and follow those rules or those guidance. It was sure. such, a, such an easy change that makes such a big impact. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of opportunity to find more of those easy changes. I'm going to well, ask you. Yeah. I'm gonna ask you one more and then we actually have a great question from our audience. Right. Um, so I think I know the answer to the question because I, I read the book and there are so many blue highlights and uh, earmarked pages in the book that I can't even give it to anyone else to read because it's, it is uniquely <laughs> my own copy at this point. But just for the record, for like the soundbite, for the, you know, the, the peaceful pull and plug on social media, do you think <laughs> organizations prioritizing and investing in integrity and ethics have a tangible advantage over their peers. No doubt, there's value in having values. You know, the what the data, in, in the old days, Sean, I think people used to think that business is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And you know what, it's not for the faint of heart. If, if things are going well in the business, you know, maybe we'll sponsor a little league team or have a scholarship, right, at the local school. Um, but it was very much separate from the business. And I think what we've learned over time is that businesses that operate with integrity actually outperform the market and they outperform their competitors. And that data from Accenture, Ernst & Young, there's so many studies now that, that show this. It's really another book I'd recommend for you all uh, in the same vein is uh, Adam Grant, a book uh, called Give and Take. And in, in, in give and take, Adam Grant studies givers and takers. 
Givers are people who are philanthropic. They're empathetic. They're thinking about others, right? And then takers are those who are very much in a zero-sum game mentality, right? They're, it's always about them. And we all know some givers and we all know takers. It's interesting. Adam did a, did a careful study. Who do you think does better financially? Who is more successful financially, givers or takers? And the answer is it's givers. Givers actually are more financially successful than takers. Why? Because the process of doing for others, I think creates an environment around you where others want to do for you as well and do in return. So that's true in your personal life. And I think that's also true for companies. Companies that are thinking about all of their stakeholders, not just their investors, although obviously their investors are important, but if they're thinking about all their stakeholders, they are rewarded even more by, this, by the world um, and, and, and in numerous ways. Let, let's just start with employees. If you are actually recognizing that your employees are key stakeholders uh, and that they matter in your business decisions, um, you are more likely to attract and retain top employees as a result of doing this, right? You are le if you are committed to following the law, your regulatory cost and audit costs go down. Um, customers, uh, we are in an age of conscious consumerism where consumers are actually making buying decisions based upon whether they think a particular company has values that are aligned with their own. So um, you, your message will actually resonate with, resonate with customers and bring in more business. So really, I think integrity is, has got to be a key tool in you know, the, the tool chest of any company if they want to maximize their financial potential. Absolutely. I completely agree. It's just great to hear you say it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are a lot, I think there are a lot of newer companies, you know, founded by millennial founders and, and that younger kind of startup environment that are really prioritizing that kind of conscious capitalism, that ESG forward approach, um, and really, you know, thinking about the footprint they leave behind. And it, they've been successful as a result of making that front and center of their business for sure. So we have a, a question from our audience from Rena Mawaka. Um, I hope I said that right. She loves your book, uh, such an easy read and extremely insightful. And she has two questions for you. Um, one, what process did you go through to identify your core risk areas that you talk about in the book, um, such as no romantic relationships in the workplace for execs? So how'd you kind of define that process? And then part two, you know, you've had great support and leadership on compliance from the CEOs you've worked with. What advice do you have for those that don't quite have that level of visibility and support from the top? Yeah, I'll take the first one. You know, I, I found a number of risk areas that we focus on. You know, I, I said earlier that you know, ambiguity is the enemy of integrity. Uh, so what we tried to do is we tried to identify what are the areas where we're most likely to get in trouble. And that's where we're going to focus specificity. That's where we're going to have a direct, open, honest conversation from leaders. And we're not, I don't think it takes a lot of imagination to be in the ethics area. The, the world brings you these examples. The world brings you stories of integrity fails uh, constantly. And so, you know, in reality, all I had to do was learn from other people's mistakes. I literally, you know, went through all of the ethics 
uh, and integrity-related investigations that had happened at Airbnb earlier. And then I read as, as much as I could about all of the integrity fails that were going on at all the other companies, particularly in Silicon Valley, but really all around the world. And you know, the, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a difficult exercise. The same things kept coming up over and over again, and they were very consistent with what I had experienced. Um, look, romantic relationships, front and center. Mixing work and rom romance is, uh, it, it can, they can have a, a positive, you know, uh, you, you do talk to people that uh, have a romantic encounter at work. I think it's like 40% of people, according to surveys, have some sort of romantic uh, involvement with someone they met through work. And I think it's around 15% of people actually marry somebody they meet through the workplace. So that's all fine and good. That's the good side to it. Now, here's the bad side. The bad side is that so often leaders in a company take advantage of their position to get sex. Um, it, it's actually something they study in the military called the Bathsheba principle. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It, it, you can uh, the, the the bath the Bathsheba syndrome. You can uh, Google it. They talk about it quite a bit in the military, and uh, I can save you the research. It actually comes from the biblical story of David and Bathsheba, and. The notion behind it is that as you become more successful in your career, as you advance up the ladder, um, unfortunately, something else comes with that success. It's almost like the seeds of failure within, within that success. What comes with it is a belief that you are invincible, a belief that you can manage any problem, um, that you are even, you have a sense of entitlement. So, People who rise up to the top of business have to recognize and fight the Bathsheba syndrome. They have to recognize that their success may lead to their downfall if they aren't careful. So, um, you know, one thing that, that I did was, you know, you, look, you, there's so many examples of bad behavior by executives at companies. Uh, I went, walked into our executive team meeting one day. And I sat down and everybody's, and we're looking around the room and I said, uh, I've got a proposal. I propose that all of us on the executive team commit that we will not engage in any romantic encounter of any kind with anyone in the company or any vendor. How did that go over? Silence for a minute, right? <laughs> uh, and one person said, oh, Rob, we're all married or we're in relationships anyway, it shouldn't matter. And I said, well, look, based on what I'm reading online, being married doesn't stop anybody. And I had an open conversation with everybody why that could be so, even a consensual relationship, quote unquote consensual, could be, um, could really undermine trust. And we, we looked, uh, we went around the room, I went to each person and each person said, I'm in. I said, great. So next thing we did was we put in our code of ethics that members of the executive team, because of their position, will not engage in any relationship, any romantic relationship of any kind with any employee or any vendor. Uh, and if they did, they are the ones that suffer the consequence. The, my, the, the lower level employee isn't going to be moved aside. Right? And you know, I don't think we broke too many hearts in the company. Uh, but what I think we did do, I think is we, we sent a message that this is not gonna be a place where people use their power to get sex. Uh, and by addressing it so openly and directly. Uh, and again, I, I meet with every member of the executive team every six months. 
Every six months, I have a one-on-one -on -one for 30 minutes just for the purpose of talking about integrity issues. And I remind them of that pledge. And because we talk about it and because we pledged it publicly, we're far less likely to have an issue than a company that has an ambiguous rule, an ambiguous rule like don't engage in sexual harassment or, well, what does that mean? So uh, again, that's one of those things where it's so easy to talk yourself into uh, it, something's okay in the absence of clarity. So that's just one example. You know, alcohol is another one where, you know, alcohol in the workplace uh, has created so many uh, situations where people do dumb things. And so what we decided to do, um, we decided to have an open conversation about it. We still have alcohol at Airbnb. But what I did was I would teach Rob's rule. And those of you that read the book know about Rob's rule. Uh, it's something that uh, people at Airbnb tell me was the most impactful thing they've ever heard in any ethics training. So I'm going to share it with you here. I hate to spoiler alert for the book, right? But, but Rob's rule is a rule that I've had ever since the beginning of my career. And that rule is very simple. I will never, ever, ever under any circumstances have more than two alcoholic drinks in any work setting. And by the way, you're always at work when you're with someone from work. Yeah. So if I'm with someone from work in any setting, I have a two drink maximum. Often I won't drink two drinks, but that's my maximum. You know, and why do I do this? Well, when I'm with folks from work, it's great to be able to go out and have a good time and socialize. Uh, I travel, great to be able to enjoy a local wine or a local beer. And I know that no matter what happens, I know myself, I can have up to two drinks and I'm not gonna do anything stupid that's gonna ruin my career. Now, what about drink number three? Well depending on how much sleep I've had, how much food I've had, how strong the drinks are and the like, I'm not so sure. And my career is worth a lot more to me than that. Yep. So I draw that very firm line. I'm intentional about it, in other words, right? In other words, ambiguity is what gets you in trouble. So what I tell everybody is you don't have to adopt Rob's rule. Again, it, it, it's Rob's rule. It's my personal rule. Um, I know people that don't drink alcohol at all. Great. I know people that don't drink in a work setting. Fantastic. I know people that have a one drink rule. I know somebody that only drinks with strangers, which has some real pros and cons. However, what you don't want to do, the worst time to be making a decision about how much to drink in a work setting is while you're drinking in a work setting. Yet that's exactly what people do. So I tell people that if they want to avoid a potentially career ending state, know yourself make your own version of Rob's rule and stick with it. And that's the that's one example, again, of this science-based intentionality uh, that we practiced at Airbnb. And then we supplemented it with rules like you may not, you may not serve alcohol without serving non-alcoholic beverages and food at Airbnb. We also shut down parties. We tell people don't do late night parties, don't go past midnight and stay away from hard liquor. Yeah. So by, by being specific about the guidance, um, we avoid the sort of problems I think that other companies end up having with alcohol. I think that's great advice. And I think that it's so, you know, obviously you write about it in depth in the book, but by being intentional and being specific, as opposed to being vague or not mentioning it at all, you know, you're covering those bases and you're giving people the guidance that they're probably looking for, but afraid to ask for, because they don't want to point a flag at themselves and, you know, potentially indicate that they might be somebody that's going to get in trouble without that guidance. Um, your, your story about Rob's rules actually really reminds me of uh, my first job out of college. I worked in, in, in marketing for a highly regulated finance company. 
and I actually worked directly with our chief compliance officer to make sure that you know our, our promotions and our ads and our social copy wasn't violating any you know CFTC guidance and things like that. Um, but he, our chief compliance officer, was most infamous internally because every and you know finance companies Christmas parties. A lot of things can go wrong there for sure, and they definitely uh, did, and probably in some instances I don't know about. But he, every week, the night before, the day before the party, would send out this company-wide email, basically saying like, in the most eloquent, like poetic way, this long, sprawling set of rules, like, don't do something that you're gonna regret tomorrow and that we're gonna have to have a conversation about. Um, but he wrote it in such a compelling way that people almost looked forward to his email about all the things that they shouldn't be doing at the party. Um, well, that's tone, from the yeah. that's tone from the leader. You know, a leader, I say that a leader is the thermostat for integrity, right? Not the thermometer. A thermometer takes the temperature of the room. A thermostat sets it. And a leader by their words and actions sets a thermostat and a temperature that everyone on their team lives in. So, um, as a leader, you've got to understand that and to realize the power that you've got. And if you've got the courage to actually talk in a direct, human, authentic way, like that email you're talking about, uh, it can be powerful. You know, and to go back to Rena's question, the challenge is what happens if you don't have yeah. the, the, the top, right? And I think, uh, you know, I, I tell the story in the book of running into the, the founder of Costco one night in a hotel lobby. Uh, and, and, uh, and we were watching a ball game together. And he looked at me and said, you know, why are you writing a book about it? The only thing that matters is the top, the leader. If your leader's got integrity, then it will flow throughout a company. And while I, I think there's more to it than that, uh, you know, what, what I worry about are the companies that don't have that tone from the top. Uh, because I do think that you can talk all you want about integrity, but if everybody's looking at the leader and they see the leader engaging in sexual harassment, getting wasted at holiday parties, uh, cutting corners uh, on things like conflicts of interest, hiring relatives, accepting gifts from vendors and the like. Uh, that's the thermostat. They've set the temperature somewhere else. And it's gonna be very hard for an individual contributor to overcome what a leader does in these situations. I mean, look, I, it, it, I think there are really there, there are three types of companies. There's one that it practices intentional integrity. Fantastic. On the other end of the spectrum are the places where the leader simply has no integrity. That's where the leader's saying things like, get this done no matter what. I don't care how we hit this number, just do it, right? Those are places I think where uh, they, they operate without integrity and they are really destined, I think, over the long run to be unsuccessful and to run into problems. Um, I don't think there's anything you can do in a circumstance like that, except get rid of the leader. Now there's a third group, and the third group is the leaders aren't against integrity. They're probably generally act with integrity. Uh, they, tr they will generally do the right thing, but they're not intentional about it. No one talks about it, no one thinks about it. Um, I think what you can do, you can influence those environments by being the one to talk about it. Uh, encourage the conversation because integrity it can be an uncomfortable topic for people. It's like, oh, that's about morals. That's about someone's personal life. Well, no, it's not. Uh, but people have to get over that. And so if you're the one that talks about doing the right thing, you can hopefully set an example and influence those around you who genuinely would like to do the right thing as well. 
be that voice, be that specificity. And hopefully you can influence a company to get more into that first category that, of companies that operate with intentionality. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think you, you probably answered the question pretty thoroughly so far, but I'll just kind of leave it hanging there if there's anything else you want to add on. Everyone on this call, everyone listening in, you know, has that moral and ethical kind of imperative to build that kind of company, right? They, at least I'd like to hope, aspire to really influence the culture and the tone and build a better place for people to work. And they might work for a CEO or a C-suite that's really focused on the bottom line. And, you know, are there instances or are there any clear-cut examples, you know, aside from that Accenture research and examples like you gave before, of what things they could do to really demonstrate how integrity and ethics impacts the bottom line in a way that could even change the mind of those groups that are really reluctant and focused so directly on the numbers and not the other stuff. I'll give you a great example. There's a company some of you may be familiar with called Etsy. Etsy is a very cool kind of craft-oriented marketplace. Now, it would be very easy for the folks at Etsy, the leaders at Etsy, not to get involved with climate change, right? Because Etsy itself doesn't have a major impact on the environment. They're, they're simply running a platform, right? Yeah. But Etsy thought about it and said, you know what? Our sellers buy all of the goods that they ship. They are responsible for adding carbon through the shipping of these goods. And Etsy said, you know what? We, we're going to own this and we're going to get involved. So Etsy went to a B Corp by the name of Three Degrees. What, what Three Degrees does is Three Degrees works with companies that want to, to become carbon neutral. But it's very it's hard for a smaller company to become carbon neutral because you don't get the economy of scale. So what Three Degrees does is it puts companies together and takes their all of their money and puts it into larger projects so that they can have a big impact. They can build an entire fleet of solar vehicles or solar farms or wind farms. So Etsy went to Three Degrees, said we want to be carbon neutral. They worked with them. And through Three Degrees, they were able to come up with a program that nets out the carbon for all the shipping on all the goods all throughout Etsy. But you know what the cost was for it? It was about one cent per transaction on Etsy. So now what Etsy does, Etsy puts a note in checkout and says, Etsy is working with whatever company it is to net out the carbon that is emitted through the shipping of your product. And this is something that Etsy does and at, at Etsy's expense. Guess what happened to Etsy's business? Etsy's, Etsy found that in checkout, it went up by significantly more than one cent per transaction. Wow. So now Etsy's making more money. and the environment is being protected because now they are carbon neutral with their shipping. So, you know, one thing I would tell companies is you can experiment with something like this. It doesn't have to cost a fortune. And what you might find is that it resonates with your employees and your customers so much that it will drive your business. And this is just one, one great example of how. That's a really interesting example because I think a lot of companies struggle you know, measuring the effectiveness of ethics and compliance, but also kind of like putting a price tag on the ROI of investing in compliance. And I think a lot of the times it's because we're really like tangibly trying to measure it in a silo as a function of a company. And what Etsy did in that example, which is really smart and, and 
brilliant and you know very measurable is they tied you know ethics and that kind of value to an actual measurable digital business kind of step in their process. And they yeah. said, well, actually people are adding more to the cart now and they're converting more and they're spending less time in that checkout zone. Things are moving through the pipeline faster. So they actually were able to kind of like embed ethics and values into their actual business workflow and then measure are things better or worse than they were before. And clearly they were better. And that's a really, you know, data-driven way to demonstrate the effectiveness of those initiatives because it's tied to the actual business. That's a really, a really great story. So I love how throughout the book, you have these code moments. And I think Rena mentioned one of them and you know, you're clearly a very gifted storyteller and it's on the page and it's in this, in this conversation today. And I think that's a really valuable thing for compliance professionals, right? To be able to tell stories, to kind of convey the values and ethics and principles and you know, policies that they're expecting people to follow. Aside from maybe that Etsy story, is there a particular story from the book that you've been talking about on the tour that you found has really resonated with people you've spoken to and that you'd want to share, really actualizing some of the more philosophical aspects of integrity and ethics? Yeah, uh, uh, let, me, let me double down on your point. If you're a compliance professional, be a storyteller. It's, uh, I've learned so much around what helps people uh, understand these things and what what sticks with them. Uh, principles don't stick with people. Uh, legal uh, legal definitions don't stick with people. Stories stick with people. And and what I what I found is that you know through all, all the training we did at Airbnb, um, if we do it with stories, particularly things that really happened, uh, it, it's so much more powerful. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a story that's not in the book, uh, but it's uh, uh, because the 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 uh, the kicker actually occurred after the book uh, after the book got in, um, but and one of the things we talk about I talk about in the book is the importance of creating an environment where people are comfortable reporting a violation. Right? Um, so often, you know, as compliance professionals, we say, "Oh, well, we got a hotline, and you can report anonymously." So what's problem the problem? Problem. Yeah. problem? What's the problem? Uh, what what? Why could someone possibly be uncomfortable? You know, the, the truth is people um, people don't like going to legal. They don't like dealing with lawyers. It's a little scary. They don't want to go to HR. They don't want to be a whistleblower. They don't want to make a big deal about things, right? Um, so what you've got to do is you've got to create an environment where people are comfortable talking, raising their hand and saying, I think there might be a problem here. Uh, and uh, if you can get that environment where people are comfortable talking about these things, because they believe not only will they believe they're not going to be retaliated against, but they believe that it's actually good behavior that will be rewarded. You are in a, really, I think, creating a very powerful force. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story about a mistake I made uh, that, that helped here. So we had open desking at Airbnb, you know, big room, lots of people all around. I had a stand-up desk. I'm at my stand-up desk one day. Guy comes up to me introduces himself. He's a mid-level manager in IT. And you know, I said, hi, nice to meet you. He said, Rob, I couldn't help but notice a little while ago when you left your desk, you didn't lock your computer screen. You left your screen open. Wow. Clearly right? you didn't take your IT training problem. I know, right? And you know, I think, well, let, well I'll be honest. What, what ran through my head in that moment was defensiveness, right? And I think it was a, oh, come on. 
I, I went to the restroom. I was I went right there over there. You know, I, I grabbed a glass of water. I wasn't gone five minutes. You know, there was nothing on my screen that was highly sensitive. We're in a building that's got security guards. We all got badges. Come on. Um, fortunately, I didn't say that because in the in the moment I realized, I remember asking myself, wow, how cool is it that a mid-level IT manager feels comfortable walking up to an executive team member and calling them out for a security violation? That is pretty cool. That's what I call speaking truth to power, right? So in the moment, I looked at him and said, you know something? Uh, you're absolutely right, and I'm embarrassed. Uh, as the general counsel of the company, uh, I ought to be a lot better than I ought to be the one setting the example. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you bringing that to my attention and letting me know because I need to do better. And then he showed me a way where I could hit one button on my on my laptop and lock it very quickly and easily, and it was great. So he walked away, and I thought some more about it and thought, you know what, this is actually a real opportunity to reinforce this into our culture. So the next time we had a large group meeting at the company, I stood up and I told the story of what I had done, the, the violation I had committed and how someone had the courage to come up to me and tell me this. And I had him stand up. We have these water bottles at Airbnb. Um, they're Yeti water bottles. They're like this one. I got. I did something from the book, but they're metal. They're they have the Airbnb logo. They've got the integrity slogan. And we would give them out whenever someone asks a good ethics question. If somebody asks a good question, raise their hand right there. They get a Yeti, an integrity Yeti, right? And so you see these around Airbnb where somebody's got them on their queue. Right? So I gave him an integrity Yeti in front of the whole large group, and everybody gave him a huge round of applause. Year and a half later, he writes me an email, page long email. And he told me that that moment where he got a $30 water bottle was his proudest moment in six years at Airbnb. Wow. Six years. And so not only did he get a lot out of it, but we, in that moment, we were able to send a message to hundreds and hundreds of people who were in the room that day that, you know what? If you speak up about something, even if it's an exec team member that screwed up, um, it's not only okay, but it's something we're going to put on display as the kind of behavior we want. And I think, you know, you have to realize as a leader that just having a hotline isn't good enough. You can't just say, well, got that hotline, so we know now it's all going to be okay. Yeah. Um, you, It's on you as a leader to create an environment where people are comfortable raising their hand and talking about things that aren't working well. And when you can do that, I think that's one of the strongest defenses you can build against a big integrity fail. You know, I love that story for so many reasons, but one thing that really stands out and whether or not this was intentional or just kind of accidental benefit, you know, you could let me know. A lot of people try to build those kind of ethical champions within their organization, people outside of legal and compliance that you know, demonstrate and are kind of champions for integrity and ethics and compliance within the company, um, that tone from the middle, right? But what you did with the Integrity Yeti is you actually gave people a physical item that would be on their desk so other people in the company, if they had to talk to someone not in the legal or compliance that they knew they could trust or that they knew shared those values and beliefs about doing the right thing, 
if they if you saw the water bottle on a person's desk, you knew I can go talk to that person. That's so that's that's right. Really but I, one of the things we did that in that same vein was, you know, I think it's dangerous if only lawyers and compliance and HR people own ethics. Uh, I used to say that I didn't. I wanted 5,000 chief ethics officers. And so one of the ways we did that is we, we actually picked people from every department in the company and from all the big offices and asked them to become ethics ambassadors, ethics advisors. And we gave them extra training on the code of ethics, you know, brought them in and really used them as, uh, as key inputs for our code of ethics. But then we sent them back out to the team and told everybody on the team, this is your ethics advisor. So if you've got a question or a problem, you can go to the hotline, you can go to legal, you can go to HR, or you can go to this person that's right there you know, in your group and ask them a question. And what we found is, you know, guess which method got used the most for raising ethics questions? The ethics advisors. Really? We got quarter number in the first quarter of this year, we had nearly a hundred inquiries to ethics advisors. Wow. Outpacing all the other methods. Why? Well, because people are a lot more comfortable raising it with someone they know, someone that's right there on their team, than they are, quote, going to legal and talking to legal about it. Um, now, most of the things that got raised with ethics advisors were small things. But these were exactly the things that Dan Ariely told us we needed to be focusing on, yeah. right? The, you know, can I accept this gift from a vendor? Can I accept uh, a plane ticket? and a free hotel to go to this conference that's put on by this vendor. You know, the little things that actually add up to potential big problems. That's really insightful. Uh, we have 10, question, uh, 10 minutes left. I want to ask you a question. And while you answer that, we have got a few more from our audience that I want to I parse through. So, okay. you know, I think Rena mentioned it and you, you talked a little bit about it. You know, don't sleep with your coworkers, don't have more than two drinks. You mentioned a bunch of common integrity issues that organizations face. Obviously, a lot of those are written about in a code of ethics or a code of conduct um, with varying degrees of success. But which of them do you think is most fundamentally altered now that people are really working remote instead of in an office? And as a compliance and ethics professional, how do you kind of make sure your program is still strong and that you still have those relationships that you could really you know, make sure people are doing the right thing while we're all remote and you lose that kind of direct line of visibility? Yeah, you know, being remote means that the, I think the common challenges are a little different now. Um, look, you know, we, we aren't traveling to conferences anymore. You know, we aren't doing the overnight trips. Uh, we aren't gathering for events. So therefore, you know, issues around alcohol, uh, you know, uh, in the workplace, we don't see those the way that we saw them before. Um, we, we are seeing, for example, issues around romantic relationships, but they are, uh, they're different. Uh, now we're seeing, you know, uh, inappropriate comments over Zoom or over Slack or, you know, suggestions of, you know, let, let, you know getting together, uh, you know, that are, that are happening online. Uh, so, you know, th we still see issues. You know, we still see conflict of interest issues, you know, where people are, uh, proposing that they hire someone hire a good friend or hire a relative and the like. So some are just happening naturally. Others, I think their form is changing. But yeah, I think it's a mistake to think that, well, you know, we're all working from home now, so there are, you know, the, the, the rules, we don't really have to worry about those things anymore. I think they just take a slightly different 
uh, form, but they're still there, and it's still important to talk about it. You know, we, um, you know, there there are a number of companies where I'm uh, I'm doing these talks, and we're doing it to the general employee base. You know, just doing a fireside chat with all employees in the company, just because you want to keep this thing top of mind. The worst thing you could do with integrity is ignore it. You know, you don't want silence. You just want that conversation. You want people. You want to keep thinking about it. like what we talked about earlier. You know, the you know the, with what Ariely talks about. Uh, you, you don't want it ever to ever to go too long without anyone mentioning doing the right thing or operating a business with integrity. And I think that's that's something you can easily do virtually. Uh, and uh, I, I think there's a it's so important still to do that. Don't don't forget about it. Don't pretend it doesn't. These issues don't exist anymore. That's that's great, and we actually have a question, you know, related unintentionally from John Fons, and you know, from his perspective, it's relatively easier to act with integrity when times are good, normal business conditions, right? Uh, but when times are tough, like they have been in 2020, and the existence of a company is at stake, and there's really, you know, a lot of pressure to perform, um, and a CEO or a C-suite is completely focused on turning the company around, is there a tendency to stop paying attention to ethics, and how does a chief compliance officer or chief ethics and compliance officer, or chief ethics officer, whatever the title might be, get the CEO and C-suite to still spend time and money on ethics during a period of financial stress. Yeah, you know what, I, I think that this is something that we talk about in the book. You know, I, when I, I turned the book in in January, yeah. uh, they, the publisher came back to me uh, in April and said, wow, Rob, the world's really different. And some folks here in the publishing company are asking the question, does it matter anymore? And, you know, and, and I was like, well, yeah, and I think it actually matters more than ever. And they and we talked about it. We actually went back and added a new chapter to the book and delayed the publication just so we could get this issue addressed. Look, uh, I, I think the tough times reveal character. This is a time where trust is bonds of trust are formed. People are watching to see how you act when things get tight. You know, you're right. You know, when things are good, it's easy, uh, you know, relatively easy, I think, to act with integrity. Uh, you know, and I think that um, there, there are a few things that I would point out. You know, the, the most important is that there's a lot of fear in times like this. People fear for their job. People don't, there's a lot of uncertainty. Trust is the basic foundation on which we get things done. And in times of fear, uh, if, if when you act with integrity, the, the the trust can be formed, but when you don't, the trust can be broken so easily. And people will always remember acts of kindness and things that you've done when times were tough. So this, I think, it, it, what I would tell executives, this is an opportunity to double down with employees, with customers, uh, you know, and with vendors and third parties, because you know. The, when people are in need, as they are now, um, you have the opportunity to invest and make a real difference. It, it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. A lot of times, it's just acting with empathy. It's just spending the time to have the conversation and let people know that you care and listening. You know, maybe there are things that you can do that don't cost much money, but um, you know, can actually make a real difference in life. I'll give you a small example of how you can do something. For, how we did something for a community. There's a, a group of family shelters here in the Bay Area. Um, and a lot of these family shelters rely on food and snacks from restaurants. 
in order to feed the people, the families in their shelters. Well, when restaurants are closed, uh, you know, th this puts a tremendous strain on these shelters. One of the things that I heard from uh, one of these large family shelters was they couldn't get snacks. You know, that the snacks, their sources for snacks that were shops like Starbucks and stuff that had literally been closed for a while. And, you know, you've got these families with these kids and they had no snacks. And it struck me that so many of us work in offices that have lots of free snacks. And these snacks were just sitting in these empty offices going stale. What a waste that was. So I actually put something up on LinkedIn. And you know the family shelter said, we've got a truck. Any company that would love to donate their snacks that are gonna go stale anyway, um, we'll come pick them up directly from the office. And we had over 30 companies sign up, volunteer and donate huge quantities of snacks that otherwise would have gone to waste. Uh, and I'll tell you, what, what a huge benefit was how good it made the employees feel. That, you know what, the times are really hard. No, you know, maybe nobody's got a whole lot right now, but even when you don't have a whole lot, often you've got something that can help somebody else. And just that act of, of caring and thoughtfulness for others, uh, I, I think was meaningful to a lot of people in companies and meaningful to the community. So um, I, I would ask CEOs and leaders to look at this as an opportunity to build bonds of trust in, in times of fear. That is a, a great story and one that uh, deeply resonates with me. Um, we're almost near the top, uh, near the 30 minute mark. Do you think we have time for one more question? Sure, absolutely, let's do it. So Maureen asked, um, you know, clearly you tell a lot of stories and you make storytelling part of building this culture and, you know, really embedding intentional integrity. Are you concerned at all or do you tell stories about bad behavior and what actually happened, whether it's within a company that you're working for or another example? And are you concerned if you tell bad stories or focus on the negative about stirring up actual people within the company and kind of starting out the wrong narrative, perhaps. I, I tell bad stories all the time. They have a powerful impact. I tell stories of people who get drunk at holiday parties, bite the security guard and draw blood, and end up having to go to the hospital. Uh, I tell stories of people who have too much to drink at lunch and come back and get into fist fights uh, outside the office. Uh, I tell stories of executives who accepted gifts from vendors that were inappropriate and got fired, or executives that got drunk at holiday parties and sexually assaulted employees. And I tell these stories because um, I wanna bring home the fact that this stuff really does happen. And the more specificity and the more you can show to people that this is really an issue and you've gotta be careful, uh, the, the more it resonates with people and the more it stays with people. Uh, I always do it in a way that uh, protects the identity of the people involved. Uh, and I've never found that it stirs things up. I find that it, it actually sticks and helps people understand the problem in a very real way where the hypotheticals and broad principles don't reach them. So I'm a big believer in storytelling and, and using real stories um, so long as I've, uh, always, I always do it in a way without using people's names or without identifying any other identifying information. Absolutely. There's actually an academic study published earlier this year, I think out of Duke University, believe it or not, and we'll include it in the follow-up email um, to the attendees and to the people that couldn't make it, about publicizing uh, violations. And by actively talking about things that went wrong, 
not only did the, was this particular company able to improve compliance within their own location, but just they sent a press release. A press release was the kind of method of communicating it. And through that press release, they actually improved conduct and prevented misconduct in locations within a certain proximity of their own office because it spread throughout that. So there's really a lot to say about, let's just not focus on the good, but let's actually talk about the bad and why it happened too. And you know, bring truth to power that this stuff actually does happen and we have an obligation to prevent it. Rob Chestnut, you are the author of Intentional Integrity. I love this conversation. You are a rock star. I hope that everyone listening to this goes out and buys your book and reads it. If you haven't already, it's great. I loved it. Thank you so much for your time and good luck with the rest of the tour. I appreciate you having me, Sean. Take care, everybody. I'll Take reach care. out on LinkedIn, by the way. If anybody is interested in furthering the conversation, I do a post about integrity-related matters almost every day. Uh, you're welcome to reach out, and I'm happy to connect with you and continue the conversation. Thanks. Awesome. Take care. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. This special production of the Compliance Podcast Network has been made possible by Sean Friedland and his original recording of the Compliance Book Club. So check out the Compliance Book Club on the SAI Global website. That will have notice of upcoming episodes. Sean graciously allows me to cross post on the Compliance Podcast Network. Big shout out to Sean Friedland. Huge shout out to Robert Chestnut. And uh, once again, if you haven't bought his book, Intentional Integrity, I would urge you to do so. It's a great read and an important read for every compliance practitioner. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.